Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about La Maupin, who was without a doubt one of the uh, one of the wildest and most romantic f- uh, figures in French history, and that's saying a whole lot. Again, remember, I've just said bloody French history, mate. I mean, if I you know if I'd come and said, oh yeah, bloody have a chat about so and so, the wild wildest and most romantic figure from you know Swiss history, you'd go, oh yeah, what do they do? Bloody drink milk two days past the expiration of everything. No, no, no. French history, mate. Wildest, wildest, wildest French person in history here. So we're really talking about... We're, we're, we're in the big leagues when it comes to this sort of stuff today. Anyway, so La Maupin, she was a whole new level of wild. Whole new level of wild she was. She was that far off the rails that if, if a train went past, she wouldn't even hear the bloody tooting of the horn, to be honest. This woman, was she was a trained swashbuckler. She was an opera singer. Uh, and she uh, she jumped into bed with just about anything that moved. Uh, she burnt down nunneries. She duelled French nobles. She passed chicks at fancy balls. She robbed graves. She did all this stuff, all while working as an extremely fam- famous opera singer. I mean, the saying, the, the, you know, there's that saying, carpe diem. That's, that's how the saying goes there. But I don't think anyone... Carpe quite as as many DMs as our mate Lamorpin here, or, or Carpe them quite as quite as much or quite as hard as she did. Really, in fact, I would I wouldn't have been surprised if there was a quite a shortage of DMs to to carp in in 18th century France as a result of what she got up to. To be honest, but look, we've got a lot to cover with this lady, so let's get to it and have a chat about the life and times of Lamorpin. Uh, and uh, hold on to your butts, my friends, because uh, it's going to be a bumpy, bloody ride. I will tell you that. So. We're going all the way back uh, to the 1670s here when uh, when she's born. Now, obviously, her name isn't La Maupin. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss that in, in, in due course. She, her name, she's born as Julie Domini, uh, the, uh, the the daughter of a bloke who was uh, a secretary to uh, the master of horse for King Louis the Fifteenth. The, the this bloke's name was Count Damagnac, and he was, uh, as I say, master of horse for King Louis the Fourteenth. and uh, La Maupin's dad was a secretary for him. So there's a link there between her and, you know, the royal family, whatever else. Um, I should mention as well, we think her name was uh, was Julie. We're actually not 100% sure. She went for most of her life as uh, La Maupin or Mademoiselle, Mademoiselle uh, Le Maupin or whatever. Uh, for reasons, as I said, we'll get to it in a second. Uh, but And that's what we're calling her this week. And, you know, that's got nothing to do with the fact that I don't really know how to pronounce her last name properly. It's got nothing to do with it. Daubigny, I think. D apostrophe A-U-B-I-G-N-Y. It's got nothing to do with that. Why would you even suggest it? Lamor Pan, much easier to say, but, you know, that's got nothing to do with it. Anyway, she's born around 1673. Again, I'm not 100% sure when, but around that date uh, at least. And uh, pretty much straight away, her dad, who is training young pages and, and stuff like that in Versailles, uh, has her uh, join in with the, with the training of, of, of these young, uh, you know, these young blokes there. So even at a young age, she's dressing as a boy. She's learning how to sword fight and have a great time. And she's pretty bloody good at it too. She loves... Uh, she loves cutting about with a sword in her hand like this. And she's also into dancing and singing. She loves to read and draw. Just, you know, just into all sorts of stuff. Very vivacious, very lively kid. Got, got a lot of lot of energy. Um, and, of course, you know, very good at sword fighting, as I say. She enjoys uh, having a scrap, enjoys a bit of sword play. And uh, as she gets into her teenage years, she actually starts to become interested in a... Uh, Different kind of sword play altogether. Different, different kind of sword altogether. There, and her her old man isn't isn't too keen on on some of the stuff that she's getting up to with the local boys. And uh, as as a result, he does what he can to you know to try to keep her out of trouble. But uh, our mate Lamorpa, she's she's oh, come on, she's not going to let something as mundane as parental forbiddance prevent her from getting what she wants. Uh, so uh, she finds an exceedingly clever way 
to get around her dad's rules when it comes to uh, intimate liaisons here because what she does, her, her dad is stopping her from sleeping with all these blokes you know, she's interested in. So she finds the one bloke that he can't stop her from jumping into bed with, his boss. You know, I mentioned uh, that bloke Count Damagnac just before. Young, young Lamopin, she, she gets involved with this bloke uh, and becomes his mistress. And, of course, her dad can't do anything. About, what's he going to do? Go to his boss and say, oh, please, mate, will you stop screwing my daughter? No, of course not. So the young Maupin, she's uh, she's having a great time again, you know, off, off and away having a good time with this, uh, with this, this count here. But she's too wild for him. She can't be contained, not in the bedroom, not, not bloody nowhere, mate. And and she is so full on, so intense that this bloke can't handle her, ends up getting a bit overwhelmed with her, the whole situation, and actually tries to marry her off to try to get rid of her, tries to find her a husband. And this works. She she gets married to this bloke named um, Sieur de Maupin, and that's obviously, well, he, he ultimately he contributed very, very little to her, her life other than his name. She was then known as uh, Madame de Maupin, later just La Maupin, then Mademoiselle. We'll, we'll, we'll stick with La Maupin because, again, it's easy to say. Anyway. He wasn't too involved with his new wife, this bloke. He was uh, obviously probably bloody terrified of her, for starters, and uh, as he was said to be pretty bloody mild-mannered and and timid, so maybe he wasn't a good match for her here. But uh, he actually gets shipped off on some boring bloody paper-pushing job in the sticks somewhere, and Lamorpana, she's not going with him. Bugger that for a joke, she says. I'm not going to go to some bloody backwater nowheresville with the world's most boring man. I'll I'll stick around here in Paris and have a great time. Thank you very much. So with her husband off in the middle of nowhere pushing pencils about, she's left her own devices, which is just how she likes it so she's you know she's running around sword fighting with blokes jumping into bed with whoever she fancied and uh, and generally just living her best life until sometime around 1687 when she meets this bloke named Serana and and Serran was a uh, an assistant to a fencing master and uh, so the two they got involved in well, again, all sorts of sword sword play together, you know, sword sword play both kinds, I guess you could say, and, and, and you know, bloody loving it. Uh, one day, however, however, they are forced to flee Paris, this uh, this new power couple. Uh, the stuff I was reading indicated that Serana uh, killed another bloke in what was described as an illegal duel. And look, I'm not up to my, you know, I'm not up on the, I'm not, not up to date on the history of dueling, and I, I'd very, I'd, but I'd very much like to know the distinction between illegal and an illegal duel is it just a, is it just a question of paperwork do you have to go down to the town you know the council office and say oh hello excuse me yes i'd like to I'd like to apply for a dueling permit oh yes i i was wrongfully scorned and need to defend my honor oh no no i didn't i didn't slap him with a glove oh oh that's a necessary precondition to permit his issuance oh okay well i'll, I'll come back uh, yes no i'll come back once i've uh, once i've slapped in face oh so, no, no I'll, I'll take care of it thank you thank you so much for your help yes absolutely uh, anyway Saran and Alain they're out of there. Illegal dueling, obviously a no-no. And so they flee Paris to avoid Saran's arrest and they head down south to Marseille. They make money for themselves en route by uh, by singing and giving fencing de- demonstrations in taverns. And Lamontpain, for the most part, stays dressed as a bloke throughout the entire time. She's not trying to pass herself off as a, as a man. She, you know, she's she's honest about the fact she's a woman, but she's she's dressing in men's clothing for uh, for the most for for the most part here. And this led to an interesting situation in a tavern one night because. One time that, you know, she and Saran, they're giving this, uh, you know, sword fighting display, whatever, not that kind. Come on, get, come on, gross, come on, dirty, get your mind out of the gutter. Uh, they're up on the, you know, up on the stage or whatever, sword fighting away. And uh, there's this punter there who's watching her and, and, and doesn't believe that she's a, a woman. She thinks He thinks uh, that she's a bloke. And so he starts, you know, yelling out all this dumb stuff about being a bloke dressed the way she is, all the rest of it. And uh, this is not a good idea. Not a good idea when it uh, when it comes to uh, hassling and heckling La Maupin, uh, who is not someone given over to half measures as I think you understand by now. So her response to this 
is that she rips her top off. She just rips her bloody top off for the world. Everyone gets a good old look at what's going on there. And, uh, I mean, look, that's, you know, one way to shut someone up. I, I bet he felt like a, a bit of a goose after that one. And, uh, well, I don't know. Anyway, in any case, she definitely knew how to prove a point. I, I suppose, you know, there's no there's no denying that. Anyway. She and Serana, they make it down to Marseille, where La Maupin is actually picked up by the Marseille Opera because of uh, her talent as a singer. She bloody loves her work as an opera singer, although it has an unfortunate uh, an unfortunate side effect for poor old Serana here because she drops him like he's hot. It seems she's had well and truly enough of him, and actually, as we as, as her opera career develops, it seems like not only had you know just enough of him, but uh, enough of men in general because uh, working as an opera singer, one of her rather more... Um, uh, passionate fans ends up becoming uh, very very close indeed to La Maupin after she'd seen her perform a couple of times so these two women they are having a great time together we don't know the name of this chick unfortunately but we do know that her parents were uh, pretty disgruntled with their daughter jumping into bed with another woman in in fact after after a time when they realized what was going on between these two women uh, the parents uh, ended up in, in an effort to regruntled themselves having been so disgruntled they sent away their daughter they sent her away from La Maupin packing her up to a convent a nunnery in Avignon where she was forced to become a nun now obviously these idiot parents they didn't they didn't realize with whom they were dealing here they didn't realize who they were up against because you know it's la bloody Maupin mate come on she's not going to let a set a setback like this rob her of her bloody girlfriend mate is she no so she decides La Maupin decides she's going to re- rescue her G from this uh, from this convent here by sneaking into the convent and running away with her and that is exactly what she tries to do. Pulls together a... No, I was going to say. She pulls together a plan. No, she doesn't. Of course she doesn't. Just turns up. She's just... I mean, she's she's an impetuous hothead. She's gonna, just going to, you know, just going to... play. It'll be fine on the night. That is 100% what she would have done here. I, 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 I'd stake my life on it. Anyway, she heads to the convent, boulders brass, and she says... She goes up and says, G'day, yeah, listen here. Um, you lot are... are you lot take you hiring or take well, I don't know what the word is but you taking on any any new nuns because I'll tell you what bloody love them hats you wear and them big black you know sack things that uh, they look fantastic they, they, I, I reckon I'd love one myself so I don't know if you've taken any new nuns I, I'd, I'd love to sign myself up here so the nuns they duly take her on as what's called a postulant someone coming in to volunteer, volunteer themselves to the to the convent and now Lamalpa is reunited with this other woman, the girlfriend here, and they are back at it like there is no tomorrow there in the convent, having you know sneaking away for midnight liaisons or whatever else. But the problem is, obviously, now they don't want to stay there forever. They they now have to escape the convent, which is easier said than done. But you've probably realised by now that subtlety was not really a word in Lamalpa's vocabulary, principally because she would have spoken French and subtlety is an English word. But that's beside the point. She also just wasn't a particularly subtle person, and. Uh, what she decides to do in order to bust them out of this convent, it's it's very on brand. I think it's uh, I think it's fair to say it illuminates her lack of subtlety very well indeed. Because one night, right, one night, there's, so there's a situation: an old nun has died. Natural causes, completely unrelated to love or is it? Probably is, but is it? Probably, probably historically speaking, probably is, or is it? But in any case, this nun has died, right? So there's a corpse of a dead nun, uh, just hanging out in the convent. So middle of the night. This pair, this pair of women, they sneak out, they get this nun's body, and they drag it up, sneaky as anything, they drag, they nick the corpse, they drag it up to the room of La Maupin's girlfriend. They put it into the chief's bed there to make it look like she's still there. Good bloody plan so far. You know, like Ferris Bueller they are, like this, excellent work, fantastic stuff from them. And you'd think that'd be that, right? They've put a little decoy in there to make everyone think that they're, you know, there's still the, the, you know, the, 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 the woman's still in her bed there like that. But no, of course, that's a, they sneak out while no one's watching. No, come on, what, what is this? It's La Maupin, she's not going to do this. After placing the corpse into the bed, 
said. Lamopar then set fire to the convent. I mean, if you were going to do that, mate, why bother with the whole thing with the body? Why bother going through all that? Just burn the place down and get out much less fuss. I don't know what's going on there. Any, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not arguing with her. I'm not arguing with her. She knows what she's about, and I'm not going to mess with something. You know, 300 years beyond the grave, I'm still not 100% sure that I'm safe from her, so I'm not going to argue 100% with her methods here. She obviously knows what she's up. Obviously knows what she's trying to do here, and uh, I don't know. Maybe she wanted to prove a point or something about getting on with this girl like a house on. But maybe that's where the saying comes from: getting on like a house. I don't know. Anyway, she's clearly a, you know a big bloody fan of this chick. If she's uh, you know burning nunneries down for her, even and on top of that, grave robbing as well, body snatching as well as arson, just to uh, to nick her away from the convent like that. Bloody hell. Anyway, Lamopin, this other woman, they're then on the run because she's a wanted woman. Well, actually, no, she's not a wanted woman. Uh, she's, she's actually, if you believe it, she's actually a wanted man. The authorities end up charging Sir de Maupin for arson, body snatching and kidnap because they would, they could, they can't believe that a woman would have gone and broken into a nunnery, stolen his body, burnt it down, kidnapped one of the nuns, all that sort of stuff. They, they don't believe that it's a woman who's done it. So they've actually, they've charged a man in, in absentia uh, for these crimes and sentenced. And the, the, the sentence, the result of this trial here is is, is a, obviously a guilty verdict and, and a death sentence here for Lamopin. So she has to make herself scarce, quick, smart. Uh, but now she's back with her girl. She's happy to just kick it and have a good time. Uh, but as it turns out, not a long time. Uh, because in a classic Lamopin move, she seems to have gotten bored of this woman after about three months, and so dumped her and moved on. So again, at a bit of a loose end here, Lamopin, she fights off the dreaded boredom by heading back towards Paris. She puts together a bit of a plan to try to, uh, you know, get rid of this pesky death sentence that's hanging over her head here. And she has a couple of adventures on a journey north back towards Paris. But most notably, she picks up a new fellow. This bloke is named Gabriel Vincent... Uh, probably should try to do it in French, shouldn't I? Gabriel Vincent Thévenard. I don't know. That's my best attempt at it. This bloke, uh, he loves to have a bit of a sing as well. So the two of them, you know, they've got a lot in common. They decide to head to Paris to get, Paris to get to try their luck at the Paris Opera. Because obviously, La Maupin being in the Marseille Opera, she's got a bit of a CV working at work for that sort of stuff. So she, she reckons she's in with a good shot. Now... Of course, as I say, there's this small matter of having been sentenced to death to deal with. No worries, Lama Pan, she said, I'll deal with that. She's got a plan for that. Don't worry about it, mate. And once she's back up north, once she's back in Paris, she pays a visit to her old mate, Count Damagnin, the, the her dad's boss, the guy who she'd been rooting as a teenager, right? So she says, listen here, big fella, it's been a long time, but um, you don't reckon that you know you could do us a favour there. Could you pay me back for all the nights of unbridled passion that you couldn't end up handling? She gets... Damagnac to uh, to go to the king on her behalf and petition for a pardon, which amazingly the king granted. So she's got off scot free from burning down a convent. Not too bad an effort there, mate. And is now free to get amongst some serious opera singing, which is exactly what she does next. Tevenar, uh, her, her new bloke, uh, lines up an audition with the Paris Opera, and they're pretty impressed with him. They hire him on the spot. However, he comes with an extra condition. He says, "I'm only going to join the Paris Opera if." You hire La Maupin as well. It's a package deal. You get the two of us or none of us. And, uh, and and the opera agreed, not really knowing what they were signing themselves up for quite clearly. And so La Maupin, she joins the company and becomes part of the most one of the most successful and physical mu- music groups in the world at the time, right? And it's at this point that I should probably po- I, I, I should probably point out something here. It's only 1690, and La Maupin is probably around 17 years old 
quite a bloody CV for someone who's not even 20 here. I mean, by the time I was 20, I hadn't even managed to beat bloody Halo 3 on Legendary, let alone burnt down a continent and join a world-class opera, opera company. So it certainly puts things in perspective for you there. This 17-year-old has already got a quite a, a wide range of achievements there. She's now singing for the Paris Opera. So, And I tell you what, she goes off like a firecracker as an opera singer. People are bloody loving her. Between her incredible singing voice, her preference for men's clothing, her skills with the sword, her predilection to jump into bed with anything with a pulse, and her, more generally her just, you know, her reputation for just being an absolute wild thing. Her career is off to a flyer. She stars in most of the of Paris Opera's major performances between uh, 1690 and 1694, and the audiences, I'll tell you this, the audiences couldn't get enough of her. Now, apparently she didn't get on too well with her opera colleagues, but that's the price of success, isn't it, mate? We all know a little bit about that. Um, but during her time as an opera singer with the Paris Opera, she had quite a number of ridiculous adventures, uh, and, and I'll highlight a couple of the more hilarious ones here. One time, this is a well-known story about her. Well, no, one time, there's this other opera singer, a, a bloke. His name is Dumanil, right? And Dumanil, he's a bit of a dickhead. He's going around saying all sorts of stupid, nasty stuff about the other singers, in particular the women. He's hassling them. He's being skeezy as all hell and generally just being a rubbish bloke. And, of course, La Maupin, she's got a thing or two to say about this. One day, right, one day after he's finished bloody harassing and hassling all these other chicks, whatever else, who are working the opera, she creeps up on him, right, creeps up on him on back alley, back street here like this in Paris, creeps up on him, ambushes him at sword point and challenges him to a duel to make him answer for his... You know, decidedly garbage behaviour. Now he's he's obviously got a brain in his head at this point. He obviously he, he, his brain box is actually still working because he says no, no, not on your life, mate. Not happening. I know I've got bloody Buckley's chance of beating you. It is not happening. I'm not fighting you in a duel at all. So you know, again, all of a sudden he's smartened up a little bit because he's refusing a duel with Lamopin. But obviously he's not getting away with it as easy as that. Oh no, no, no. So Lamopin, she grabs a cane. And she starts walloping him with it, beating him black and blue just to, you know, really let him know how it is. And for good measure, she nicks his pocket watch and his snuff box, just, to, you know, just to really send a message. Anyway, so poor old Dumanil, he goes back to, he goes back home, lick his wounds, and the next time he comes into the opera, everyone's asking him, oh, mate, you know, what happened? You look like death warmed up. You've been beaten half to death. What, who's bloody bashed you, mate? What's happened? And Dumanil, do you know what he does? He just lies. He lies through his teeth, mate. He says, oh... You wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. I was walking home, minding my own business. Then oh, this vicious gang of thieves, they jump out the shadow. There were tons of them. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you, I'll, I gave them a good hiding as well. Don't even worry about it. You should see the other guys. But too many of them, eh? And they nick my watch, they snuff box, and they, they bloody bash my head in the mongrels like this. And at this point, while he's telling this tall tale about these thieves that, of course, didn't exist, Lamopin, she leaps forward. She pulls out the snuff box and the pocket watch and chucks them straight at his head and says, don't listen to this idiot. He's talking bloody horse apples. It was me what gave him a belting and for bloody good reason. He's just a liar and a coward. He's a bloody bastard. Don't listen to what he's saying. Talk about being put in your place. Bloody hell, Dumanil here. Unbelievable. Anyway, this other time, and this may have actually happened, I'm not 100% sure of this, may have happened before she joined the opera. In any case, it did happen at some point and, and there doesn't seem to be a clear consensus on exactly when. In any, in any case... Um, she's out in the source one night. She's obviously, you know, this is classic. This is very on-brand behavior once again, getting a few jars into her, having a great time, carousing, fighting with blokes, whatever else, you know, picking, just, just having a good time. But trouble starts brewing properly when some bloke starts trying to flirt with her. Um, apparently, however, he's uh, doing a pretty bloody bad job because Lamopin, uh, Lama she's not picking up what he's putting down. He's not. She doesn't seem very impressed at all. She's actually so uh, unimpressed with his clumsy flirting, uh, in fact, that uh, she suggests that they take it outside to settle it mano a womano. And uh, this absolute turkey of a bloke is uh, foolish enough to accept. Obviously, he didn't know what he was getting himself into. So they go outside. They pull out their swords. No prizes for guessing who wins, of course, as Lamopin runs him 
clean through. Clean through the shoulder, sticks, his, sticks her sword straight through him there like that, and he collapses to the ground. Now, the next morning, however, she actually feels a bit guilty about this because, you know, she's just nearly killed a bloke because he was, you know, doing a bit of clumsy flirting. And, and, and so she decides she's going she's gonna to hunt him down, find him, find where he is, and, 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 and just go and see how he's doing, maybe apologise. Now, as it turns out, as it turns out, this is quite unbelievable, as it turns out, this bloke, his name was Louis-Joseph d'Albert, right? He was the son of a duke. So he's a very, very high-ranking noble indeed, a very, very, you know, proper rich, knobby aristocrat fellow there like that. And La Maupin has put her sword through him. Oops, I mean, again, of all the people that you would want to impale on the end of your sword, the son of a duke, probably not very high on that list. Now, of course, you know, for all this build-up that I'm saying, you know, oh, how terrible is it going to be? She stabbed the son of a duke. Nope, of course, she gets away with it scot-free. No bad consequences at all. Quite the opposite, in fact, because... She actually, she visits this fellow, she visits Dalbert and, uh, as he's recovering, and, uh, I mean, I, didn't, I probably don't even have to tell you, you can probably guess what happens next. Of course, they, they end up hooking up, <laughs> they end up jumping into bed with each other, of course. These two are very, very big fans of one another, it seems, and uh, while politics prevented them from any, you know, any sort of lasting attachment between the two, um, once they were finished, you know, exchanging fluids. They actually remained quite very, like very, very good friends for the rest of their lives here, which is, uh, which is a pretty funny story. I mean, you know, you hear wild stories about how people meet, but uh, it seems like at the end of the uh, end of the 17th century in France, instead of Tinder, you had to run a bloke through with your sword uh, just to pull it. And, uh, anyway, the final story I'll tell you is uh, is about uh, you know about her time with the opera. It's actually is, is actually an incident that that ended her career with the uh, with the Paris Opera for the time being. Here, it actually it it, it sort of prevented her from continuing to sing with them. Because, uh, I'll tell you what happened here, La Maupin, she's at a big royal fancy ball, big, big fancy ball there, all the knobs are there, she's having a dance and a drink and a great time, very much in her element, loving life, carousing, having a good time, whatever else. She's in her usual men's clothing, as she prefers, and uh, she gets uh, a little bit carried away at one point and ends up pashing another woman at the ball right in front of everyone there. Now... Obviously, there's no Pride Month at the, end, at the turn of the 18th century. People aren't too impressed with this. And amongst all the shock and the horror and the scandal, three different blokes challenged La Maupin to a duel then and there. Now, obviously, she's always ready for a scrap, always ready for a duel. So she says, no worries, boys. I'll meet you out in the car park or the carriage park, I guess. I don't know, whatever it is. Here we bloody go. Get yourselves ready. So everyone scrambles outside to get a, you know, get a good view. It's like a playground fight at high school. These are all in a circle. Going, fight, 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 fight. And Lamopin pulls out her sword, duels these three blokes one at a time, and of course, beats every single one of them easy as anything. Now, as cool as that is, she's going around, strutting around, waving the sword around, the crowd loving it, whatever else. You'll remember there's an unfortunate detail about dueling. It is illegal. It is mired by a nightmare of red tape in bureaucracy and all of that sort of thing. And uh, illegal dueling is still illegal. And unfortunately, La Maupin has just had three illegal duels, one after the other. And all of them, you'll remember, took place out of the front of a royal ball in front of the royals that were hosting this ball and also presumably chanting fight, 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 fight with everyone else. But this means that our mate Lamopin is in a bit of trouble because there are some pretty reliable witnesses who, who saw the whole thing what happened. So once again... She's on the wrong side of the law, and uh, before things get too hot for her in Paris, before there's a you know a chance to really respond to what she's done and, and get her in, in, in any trouble, she's back on the road again. This time, she's heading off to Brussels to lay low. And I will tell you this, I will tell you what, she definitely does exactly that. She does a fair bit of laying low. Most of it is done with Maximilian II Emmanuel, the Elector of Bavaria. 
I have no idea how she managed to hop in bed with the uh, hop into bed with the Elector of Bavaria, but that is what she does. She snags a job with a different uh, opera company there in Brussels, and she has a great time as uh, as the mistress of this Elector. Elector here. Now uh, you won't be too surprised to learn that he also ends up finding her too hot to handle and has to call things off because she's just way way too intense. The story goes right that at one time at the opera. She stabbed herself with a real actual dagger as part of the performance. And this is what makes the elector go, okay, right, this chick is bonkers. It's time for me to bail because, you know, before I know it, that dagger will be getting stuck into me. I've heard stories of what this uh, what this woman's like and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not risking it. So like a total coward, he sends an emissary to uh, La Mopin to inform her that it is all over Red Rover. A bit like, you know, these days if you uh, if you dump someone via text message, that's what uh, that's what this poor old elector does. He, he also ga- gives the emissary 40,000 francs to give her as a parting gift and uh, reportedly La Mopin, who again, you know, isn't going to be taken in by this sort of stuff, takes the money and throws it right back in his face and swears at him until he leaves. So this poor old, I mean, talk about don't shoot the messenger, don't chuck 40,000 francs in the face of the messenger. And this uh, this cowardly elector, he's just like, oh, no, well, thanks, mate. Thanks for dealing with it for me. But, you know, obviously he didn't have the stones to, uh, to, uh, <laughs> to go and do it himself. Anyway. She's had enough of Brussels before too long after this whole business with the Elector and the, and the opera there like that. And as the heat has died down in Paris while, you know, after her duel, she actually decides to head back there before, before too long, really. And uh, once again... Once again, she receives a royal pardon for the illegal jewels. As I say, she sort of fl- fled Paris before the, the situation got to resolve itself. But uh, it turns out once she gets back to Paris that the king had actually found the whole thing pretty funny uh, and pointed out that the, uh, the, the law that prevented men from uh, illegal jewels said nothing about women dueling illegally so uh you know she got off on a technicality got the old, old royal pardon there like that and and the king had enjoyed himself but uh she didn't seem to have learned her lesson from this because uh, she goes straight back to uh, knocking about with dalbao that bloke that she'd stabbed in the shoulder and these two they get into all sorts of trouble they're going about dueling blokes reveling carousing and brawling and apparently at one point beating up a landlord which is a remarkably specific for th- thing for history to have remembered about the this pair but anyway as we head into the 18th century here, she's back at it now at the Paris Opera. She's got she's got her old position back, enormously popular, famous singer she is, of course, and she's there singing away to rapturous crowds and getting stuck in with her usual wild behaviour. She's you know, she's fallen in, she's fallen in love again. This time it's with one of the sopranos, Fashion Moreau. Here, I'm not I'm, gonna, I'm just giving up on the French here. Uh, who was unfortunately for Lamoupa, this uh, this woman, she was the mistress of the Grand Dauphin, the uh, the son of Louis the Fourteenth. In other words, the Crown Prince and. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, we can all feel a little little bit of sympathy for anyone who's fallen in love. Un- unrequited love is, is always a very terrible thing to deal with. But Lama Pa, mate, come on. You've got to pick your battles. I'll tell you what. I don't think I'd ever try to cut a crown prince's lunch. Uh, I mean, of all the people in the world who you want to get on the wrong side of, the crown prince of France, probably not the one to, uh, you know, to, to cross there. But in any case, uh, Moreau, the soprano, she's not interested in L'Amour and apparently our poor mate nearly bloody commits suicide. She was that heartbroken at not being able to snag this bird that, uh, you know, she nearly bloody kills herself. And... Uh, Obviously, that's you know pretty troublesome, pretty uh, pretty unfortunate there. But she pulls through it all, and it doesn't stop her any any of her wild. But she's basically like she's just she's an A list celebrity essentially in Paris at this stage, and she can just do whatever she wants. She's that far off the rails, as I say. She can just go around partying, having a great time all the time. I mean, you know, you think about celebrities these days going off and on wild benders and, and doing whatever they want. This is exactly what Lamoureux is. This is the equivalent of it from you know seventeenth century France, but. Uh, 
It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. Remember Tevinar, the, the bloke who got her a job with the Paris Opera in the first place? He's still hanging out with Paris, and, and, and he and Lamopin, they're still mates. Uh, one time, one, a very famous incident between the two. They had a big bust-up on stage during a performance one night, and she bit his ear until he bled. So, you know, a lot of weird parallels. She's, she's very much the Mike Tyson of her day as well. Anyway... In 1703, after years and years of of going around as as an absolute wild thing, doing all the stuff that she's doing, in 1703, it finally seems like La Maupin is going to settle down, if you'll believe it. She finally meets someone who seemed to calm her down and pacify a lot of the wildness, chilling her out and easing her into a, a, a quiet life of domestic bliss. And and this person, you know, the, uh, La Maupin, her new and, as it would it would turn out, final flame, this person who was, who was able to, again, just chill her out and, and, and stop her from being such a, an absolute maniac here, was a woman called Marie-Louise Teresa de Senatera. And uh, this uh, she was a noble one, and she was described as the most beautiful woman in France. So La Maupin certainly knew how to pick them, that's for sure there. So by all accounts, uh, from 1703 onwards, these women were a perfect match. They lived together, make, made each other incredibly happy, and they again, living with each other for over two years. And I'm inclined to believe it because I'm inclined to believe that these these two women were perfectly matched for each other because think, think about everything that La Maupin has done for her entire life so far. She's hardly stuck with any of her lovers for more than a few months before either dumping them or scaring them off. And so this Marie-Louise, she must have had something very special going on with her if she's able to nail down La Maupin for two years here. But tragically, tragically, my friends, La Maupin did not get her happily ever after because Marie-Louise fell ill after two years of their relationship, uh, within two years of their relationship beginning, and sadly, she died of a fever in 1705. And La Maupin, who is just in her early 30s at this stage, was absolutely devastated. She was heartbroken, heartbroken to have lost this woman, uh, who again seemed to have really been uh, someone incredibly special for her to, to have settled down for, for such a long time, in, uh, you know, in, in relative terms at least. She was so busted up, so busted up by the loss of, uh, you know, of, of, of her lover here that uh, she ended up, if you'll believe this, she ended up quitting her job with the opera and going to a convent to become a nun. This time for real. This time she actually became a, a proper actual postulant who was there because she didn't want to do any. She, gone. Gone was her fiery temperament, her wild behavior. Poor old La Maupin actually died. A heartbroken woman in 1707 at the age of just 33. So she burned hot and she burnt bright, my friends, but she didn't burn for a very long time. And, and it's, it's, you know, after all the wild, incredible adventures she had throughout her life, it's very sad that, she, uh, that her life ended in the way that it did. But what a life she had. Talk about a full life and well-lived. La Maupin, she spent every possible moment of her time doing what she loved, fighting, frolicking, and finding new ways to get to know people. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of La Maupin. First of all, my apologies that this episode was a couple of days late. I've been very busy busy with... uh, other IRL stuff, travelling around and, and getting it done. And I'll, I'll do my best to get these episodes out on time, but I think every now and again there may be the odd delay here and there and everywhere. 
Anyway, thank you to the people who continue to get in touch with the show. If you want to do the same, halfhousehistory.net. There's a contact form on the website, and it's there you can find old episodes and what have you. You've all heard that before. Um, you, can, you can subscribe to the show on uh, on iTunes or on Spotify, and I think subscribe for Android is also working. I've had a couple of requests about getting on Google Podcasts. I can't. Unfortunately, I can't do it. It's only available to citizens of uh, or people based in the United States and Canada, and I'm not one of those people. So I'm very sorry about that. Uh, as soon as it's available on Google Podcasts, I'll, uh, I'll put it up there. But uh, for the time being, uh, Google have said coming soon for the last six months at least. So anyway, um, that is just about that for the for this week. Uh, thanks for hanging out with me. It's been great. And I'll, I'll be back next week, of course, with more half House History, this time hopefully on time. Until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. Of course, Reddit historian Devious Aardvark has a question to do with France. Uh, what happened during the reign of terror in France? Was it like acid rain? What made it so terrible? 